Welcome to Season 4 of The Term, a podcast for the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Law360, Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy. How's it going? Ah, it is great to be back on The Term, Natalie. I'm great. How are you? How was your summer? Well, it went so fast. <laughs> I can't believe we're here already. <laughs> Uh, it went it went well, though. I'm excited to to kind of jump back in into all the Supreme Court news, although it feels like, you know, it kind of didn't quite end over the summer. Uh, you know. Yeah, no, it, it didn't. There was some definitely some shadow docket activity. There were some kind of spicy uh, justice appearances at the different uh, circuit conferences. That I love going spicy to- justice appearances. <laughs> I hope they continue. Me too. Me too. We're going to talk about this um, with our guest today, Um, but it's interesting, you know, it's like, you know, here in the D.C. region, the leaves are beginning to fall, the air is getting that nice crisp, and you know winter is kind of on its way, but Supreme Court, meanwhile, is coming out of hibernation after its long recess. The term kicks off this Monday, the October 2022 term, that is, with the first two-week argument session of the term. The justices met for their long conference on Wednesday to discuss some of the appeals that have been piling up in their absence since they kind of gaveled out for the recess in July. We don't know yet as we record this on Wednesday when the court will release that orders list telling us which, if any, among those cases it will be hearing um, for this term because, you know, uh, we are only about, I don't know, a little bit less than half of the way filled on the docket despite the prevalence of major blockbusters. That's right. And something else we don't know about is whether they'll continue to live stream arguments. Uh, it's, you know, something that started during the pandemic, but they're starting to loosen the rules that they, they set in place, including now having people back in the courtroom. So it'll be a kind of wait and see to see if they, they continue on. Personally, I'm hoping they are. Yeah, I, I'm hoping they are. And I'm fairly optimistic that they that it will be here to stay just given the success that it's had and the blowback that would inevitably follow their decision to just like pull the rug out from under um, live audio now that they finally entered the, what we call that, the 20th century (laughs) in any event. Um, So turning to the aforementioned guest, loyal listeners may recall that at the beginning of last season, we brought on Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog to help preview what was shaping up to be a pretty significant term if we only knew how crazy things were to get. Anyway, I was kind of racking my brain about, you know, an equally uh, savvy court watcher who we could bring on for this blockbuster term to forecast some of those major cases. And then it just kind of hit me. She did so good. Why don't we just try and get Amy back on the show? And so here, um, as living proof that, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, um, I'd like to welcome back Amy Howe, uh, the editor and reporter for SCOTUS blog, Amy is also the host of the podcast SCOTUS Talk, which did its own term preview show. So I encourage all our listeners to, after this one, go check theirs out and give that one a listen. Thanks for joining us, Amy. It's good to be back. I can't believe it's been a whole year. (laughs) There's just a a few things that have happened in between, right? Um, In any event, yes, uh, I I recall doing my, you know, term wrap-up pieces, speaking to a bunch of various attorneys who described, you know, the, the preceding months as one of the most significant Supreme Court terms in a generation, if not longer. So before we tee up this Supreme Court term, why don't we do the like, 
you know, Game of Thrones season recap to kind of catch us up where we are today and talk about the context of the court, like at this moment in, you know, public life as the justices to prepare prepare to tackle another batch of these massively consequential legal questions. So where are we heading into this term? I mean, I think that's kind of the $64,000 question. It was a huge and contentious term. And normally the justices spend the summer teaching and traveling and sort of decompressing. But we've still had the justices in some of their public appearances kind of trading shots at each other. We had the chief justice out at the 10th Circuit Judicial Conference in Colorado a couple of weeks ago talking about the court's legitimacy and how the court's legitimacy shouldn't depend on the opinions that it issued just because people don't like them. And Justice Kagan, a couple of nights later, was like, well, actually, and she's somebody who you know, doesn't actually normally speak out a lot. So to hear her respond pretty directly to the chief suggests that you know, they, they may still have some issues to be working out. Yeah, yeah I, I, I guess I wasn't alone in thinking like that was seemed to be a direct response to what the chief justice was saying just a few days prior. Now, uh, Roberts was interesting in his kind of statement. Of course, he was referring to the barricades around the court finally coming down, but he said he was looking forward this term to a return to normalcy. But in my mind, I'm thinking maybe we've just reached a kind of a new normal here with the level of kind of acrimony surrounding issues about the Supreme Court when you have protests at the justices' individual homes and you have these barbs exchanged in public speeches and all the conversations surrounding court packing and court reform. Do you think that maybe there is no normal to return to and that as the justices bite off another batch of these big cases that maybe we're just in this level of polarization when it comes to the institution? It it may well be. I mean, I've been doing this for a, kind of a long time now, and it seems like there have been previous terms and major cases where the justices issue a decision, you know, the, the public approval ratings dip, but then they go back up and that, you know, so you had Bush versus Gore, you had Citizens United and Shelby County. Um, but you know, Dobbs, the, the court is at kind of an all-time, you know, recent low in terms of public opinion. And the other thing to keep in mind is that barring some sort of unexpected event, this 6-3 conservative majority is going to be here for a while. We've had a lot of turnover over the court with four justices, four new justices in the last five years. But the court has moved to the right, and you have the sense that the you know several of the conservative justices want to continue to move to the right. And I think also Dobbs has just put the court in the public eye in the, a way that perhaps it, it hasn't been consistently in the past. People sort of forget about it. And people are really focused on the court right now. And a lot of people strongly disagree with the decisions that they're issuing. And they may not issue necessarily something as sort of once in a generation as Dobbs, but there's a lot of hot topics coming down the pike, including this fall. Also with Dobbs, there was that side storyline of the 
draft of the opinion being leaked, which the investigation into that is still ongoing. Um, I know Justice Kagan at another event actually mentioned that they're kind of awaiting a, you know, new update on that investigation by the end of this month. Uh, Days are ticking. We haven't heard anything, but uh, that could land any moment. And, you know, I, I have to imagine internally that's just causing some amount of drama. Uh, I, I think maybe that's the best way to say it. Uh, Amy, do, do you think that that investigation will continue to kind of impact how the court is functioning, essentially? I think so. I think that it was it certainly wasn't the first breach, but it had been a long time since there was a, a real breach and certainly a breach that major, not just the result in Dobbs, but the draft opinion itself. The justices are very protective of their inner deliberations. And, you know, obviously part of the problem is we don't know who leaked it. And so when you don't know who leaked it, you don't know what their motivations were. We don't know whether it was successful. But I imagine that there was, you know, just kind of a level of, suspicion or or lack of confidence that the justices uh, have that they didn't have, you know, a year ago. Right. And, and uh, I guess we should kind of say what the the justices have said on the record at this point. Gorsuch has indicated that there is this committee that's working on this report. And Kagan says a few days later that, you know, they will kind of share and update the the rest of the the court members um, by the end of the month, which um, I suppose may be kind of an item at today's conference. We don't really know any of the details beyond that other than to say the justices have said that, I believe, Amy, I'm right, that they haven't heard whether or not, you know, this investigation has actually named a culprit for for the leak, that they're kind of as in the dark as the rest of us are. Is that kind of a fair description of what we know so far? It's, yeah, I think that's right. I think that they're in the dark, and a few of them have shared with us that they are, in fact, in the dark. I thought that maybe if the court moved relatively quickly and it turned out to be a law clerk, then maybe even if it, they didn't make any sort of public announcements about the leak, word might get out because if it were a law clerk, you'd have to fire him or her, and that would certainly get out. But none of the law clerks who were there last year would normally be there this year. They would have all changed over after the end of the term. So that's, we, we not, might not even have that sort of signal about who the culprit was. I mean, we don't, we don't know what they're gonna announce. Like right. if they find a culprit and deal with it amongst themselves, or are they gonna say, we don't know. Right, we don't know and- you know, Shocking that there's been this kind of <laughs> lack of transparency. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that this is all in the context of a leak, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's highly possible that we will never know um, whether that's because the court never finds the person or because they never tell anyone who that person is. In any event, um, let's move along to another big uh, change this this term at the court. We have a new justice. And as the justices like to say, with each new justice, it's a new court. Um, so what will you be looking for from Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, who has her investiture this Friday and will be replacing Justice Stephen Breyer among the three uh, Democratic appointees of the liberal wing of the court, Amy? So I'm looking for two things, really. Nobody really expects her to change the ideological balance on the court. Obviously, we don't know 
her positions on all of the issues that the court is likely to face. But the general expectation, and I think a, a solid one, is that she is going to vote more or less like Justice Stephen Breyer. You know, having said that, she is not Justice Stephen Breyer. She's younger. You know, she's a black woman instead of a an older white man. She has brings different professional experiences to the table. So yeah, it will be interesting to see what the dynamics are at oral argument. You know, the justices under the the format that the court used last term, we don't know whether they're going to continue to use it going forward, but I suspect, uh, you know, have kind of a free-for-all where anyone can ask questions and then a chance for each of them to ask to ask questions in order of seniority at the end. You know, is she going to be a really active questioner? Uh, is she going to be a strategic questioner? Is, how will her experience as a trial judge and as a public defender play in. And then the other thing that that I'll be looking for is not even so much how she votes, but what she writes, particularly as a separate opinion. Is she going to be more like just in a sense, is she going to be more like Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has really taken over the the mantle from the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg as sort of the the lead liberal on the court, or is she going to be more in the mold of Justice Kagan, who is, although you know, a member of the court's liberal wing, you know, doesn't always join on all of Justice Sotomayor's separate opinions. I guess just on the oral argument thing, it's interesting. I think, I, I suspect that she'll probably be a pretty active questioner, just judging that purely off of like how she's been on the district and circuit court. I, I covered a couple of her cases in the district court. And then I listened back to some of her arguments on the circuit court. And even in some big cases, I mean, she was right out of the gate swinging. Of course, Supreme Court's a whole different ballgame. And uh, the new justices, they kind of tend to sometimes uh, differ in terms of their kind of aggression displayed in their first term. I know Gorsuch really swung for the fences in that, in that first term. So that should be interesting as well. We kind of nodded to this earlier, but, you know, the public is getting to be allowed back in the courtroom. Um, and there's that question of whether they'll keep, you know, the live audio, which like the questioning format is a, you know, pandemic uh, system and new system that that the court adopted uh, when the courts went essentially remote. What's your best guess with live audio? I'm personally hoping they keep it. I mean, I'm hoping they'll keep it. And, and I do think that they will keep it, you know, they sort of evolved. There was no question that they were, were going to need to have the live audio if they were going to hold oral arguments in the first part of the pandemic when they were doing it entirely remotely. You know, Then they continued it in the courtroom when there was a small group of reporters, law clerks, and basically the, lawyers, the, the court staff and the lawyers who were arguing. But they did continue with the live audio. You know, they're were certainly not any issues with the audio when they were in the courtroom. There was a, a minor issue that when they were uh, arguing remotely involving an errant toilet flush. the flush heard um, around you know, the world. <laughs> the flush heard around the world. That, that was the, 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 the last uh, big scandal before the leak, uh, certainly much more minor one. Um, you know, I can see that they are likely to be concerned about having live audio and the possibility, particularly given the Dobbs decision and how 
polarized public opinion is that worried about protesters in the courtroom the way they had now several years ago. I think it was on the anniversary of the Citizens United decision. They had a bunch of people come in and start yelling during the oral argument and that they dealt with it pretty quickly, but it's it's disruptive. Um, but I, I can't imagine that, I hope that they do not let that concern override the access to the live audio. I guess the other concern that they may have, you know, in pre-COVID times, they would issue opinions from the bench, um, sometimes before oral arguments began. And even when they were back in the courtroom, they opted instead to just release opinions electronically. And they did that on a separate day from the days in which they heard oral argument because there's a whole question about live audio of opinion announcements. You know, before COVID, the live audio for arguments would appear at the end of the week, usually, in which the cases were argued, but the live audio of the opinion announcements didn't show up uh, anywhere until the following fall, in essence. I, you know, I have never understood the resistance to making live audio of opinion announcements available, but you know, there, there certainly are justices who are opposed to it, which is all sort of a long-winded way of saying, I hope they come back. I think they will. Um, but I know that there are likely still some concerns. Yeah. I mean, to say nothing of the general interest of, you know, transparency and public access to the courts, I hope they keep audio just so Gabe Roth's head doesn't like physically explode if they decide <laughs> to take... Anyway, um, yes, all very good... Uh, all very big issues to look out for um, with the, the oncoming start of the term on Monday. So let's turn to the docket itself. There's some really big cases that we've uh, kind of mentioned in passing so far. I, I want to just up top focus on what I think are pretty much the headliners. And these are the big affirmative action cases um, out of uh, challenges to the race conscious admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of uh, North Carolina. Like I said, I think yeah, they're probably the most closely watched cases uh, this term. And they have the potential um, to not only end or not only affect affirmative action policies in these schools, but in colleges across the country. They were filed by an uh, anti-affirmative action group called Students for Fair Admissions. Um, Amy, can you just kind of set these cases up for us, talk about some of the legal issues that we're um, expecting to see play out at oral arguments when they come up on Halloween, I believe, October 31st? Ha yes, Halloween. Yes, yeah, so it's back in 2003, the Supreme Court, in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger, ruled that the University of Michigan could consider race as part of its efforts to assemble a diverse student body. And that was a divided court, Justice Clarence Thomas is now the only justice from that court who is left on this version of the Supreme Court. He was in the dissent. And these cases asked the justices to overrule that decision. One important, possibly important little data point from Grutter is that even the majority decision by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said in the end, we hope that in 25 years, universities will no longer need to consider race. So it was only, you know, 19 years ago, but but we are getting close to that 25-year yeah, like sunset. 2028, right, I guess, was when the yeah, sunset yeah, was I mean, my, set. Yeah. It, it, exactly. So the Students for Fair Admissions say that 
The Grutter case, you know, this is a phrase that may be familiar to people who read the Dobbs decision, was grievously wrong. Um, and when it back when it was decided, and you should overrule it now because the Constitution should be colorblind, in essence. Um, the universities say there is no reason to overrule this longstanding precedent. Our policies are consistent with those precedent and you know, with a nod toward the focus in the Dobbs case and in the gun case from New York, they talk about the extent to which Grutter and the, the some of the affirmative action cases from the past 10 years or so, a case called, two, two versions of a case called Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin, are consistent with the text and the history of the Constitution. Um, the University of North Carolina, where I w- went as an undergraduate, says you know, we've Hence put in... <laughs> Yes, exactly. Go Tar Heels. Um, we have put in place other programs to try to ensure that we have a diverse student body. We actively recruit first-generation college students. We actively recruit low-income students. But there is no substitute for being able to consider race as one factor of our holistic process. Yeah, it's an interesting one. When you read the brief from the um, from Students for Fair Admissions, you know, they go all the way back to Justice uh, Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, tracing that to um, the Brown v. Board decision, basically saying that the Constitution is colorblind in, in reading those, uh, you know, commands against racial discriminations very literally, that, that you know, any considerer of race should be considered unconstitutional. Uh, whereas the schools, on the other hand, seem to be saying that there's a little bit more leeway when looking at the actual intent of some of these policies and looking back. It's it's fascinating to read the arguments, especially in the wake of Dobbs, now that the court has kind of, I don't know, they handle these cases a little bit differently. There's a lot of historical arguments that are being made. I mean, do you think that there's an effort on the part of the the parties to kind of like kind of piggyback off of Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs in kind of speaking in those originalist terms as they try to decide the question of uh, whether these affirmative action policies are unconstitutional? I do. Yeah, there was the the joke by Justice Kagan several years ago where she said, we're all textualists now, that we all focus on the text of the statute or, you know, instead of looking at what Congress might have meant when it drafted the statute. And I think to a certain extent now we're all historians, Um, you know, because if you're talking about the Constitution, you, you know, and you're making arguments, you may go, need to go back to you know the time of the founding or when the Fourteenth Amendment was drafted and provide historical arguments. I think you know that opens up a whole you know different box of arguments. People have sort of pushed back against it because then you're like, well, you know, whose history are we talking about? And, and the, the the idea that the justices are not they're very talented and smart people, but I don't think any of them is trained in history. Which I think leads us to the next bucket of pretty high profile cases we're, we're going to be watching um, are the two voting rights cases, uh, one of which actually also deals with the interpretation of the Constitution and, uh, and the clause. Um, Moore v. Harper, uh, the election clause lets state legislators draw congressional maps and set rules for elections. And in this case, uh, North Carolina's Republican legislators are asking, you know, whether state courts can review issues like redistricting and post-election disputes um, and essentially 
overrule the legislators uh, when it comes to those issues. Amy, can you kind of talk us through the potential impact um, and what's at stake with this case? Yeah, so the big picture potential is that you know, if in these cases, if in Moore versus Harper, the North Carolina case, they ex- the court accepts the state legislature's argument, or in Merrill versus Milligan, the Alabama redistricting case, uh, the court accepts the state's argument would be some really could be some really dramatic changes to the way redistricting and elections operate. You know, starting with Moore versus Harper, the North Carolina case, as you say, you know, the state's argument in essence is that the state legislature's argument is that when the Constitution refers to the legislature, that really just means the legislature. And so the governor can't step in and veto redistricting maps. The state court can't make decisions about whether or not something violates the state constitution. This was a challenge to the congressional map in North Carolina. And the argument was that it was a partisan gerrymander because independents, Democrats, and Republicans are roughly evenly divided among the states. But this map, as it's drawn, could give Republicans as many as 10 out of 14 seats in the House. And so the state Supreme Court said that's a partisan gerrymander. It's sort of a, to step aside for a second, back in, a couple of years ago in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court said, well, federal courts can't review partisan gerrymandering cases under the federal constitution because it's just too political, basically. But they said, state courts can still review partisan gerrymandering cases under the state constitution. And so, you know, part of this question is, can they actually? So if you take away the state courts, (laughs) I was about to say, though, if you take away the state courts, then who gets to look over any potential gerrymandering? There's no review, essentially, in, in some cases. Yes. And so, you know, this whole theory was one that was initially floated by Chief Justice William Rehnquist back in Bush versus Gore, he wrote a separate opinion that said, I agree with the majority that the the Florida Supreme Court couldn't stop the recount. But I think that they couldn't stop the recount for the additional reason that that would interfere with the deadlines set by the state legislature. And that was kind of the first anybody had really sort of thought about this. And then it, you know, we heard about it again back in, in 2020, the 2020 elections when Pennsylvania legislators came to the Supreme Court asking them to fast track an appeal about the state Supreme Court extending, because of COVID, the deadlines for absentee ballots to come in. And in that case, the Supreme Court did not fast track the appeal, but three justices uh, who are all still on the court, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch said, this likely violates the, the Constitution. So, you know, we know that there are justices who are interested in it, I think one of the questions will be, you know, if they rule for the legislators in this case, like what are the, what the contours of the ruling will be? Because, you know, they could say theoretically legislature means legislature and that's it. But then there are other iterations, sort of other interpretations that could give, you know, whether you're talking about state courts or the, the governor, some role, but would still, you know, give primary power to the legislature. Amy, you mentioned uh, earlier the Milligan, the Merrill versus Milligan case, uh, which is another 
voting rights case that's on the docket this term. It focuses on whether a congressional map Alabama introduced after the 2020 census violates um, the bar against racial gerrymandering in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, The proposed map at issue includes only one majority black district, though black people make up about 27% of the state's population. I know this is a bit of a more technical, very specific to Alabama question, but can also have broader implications for the reach of the Voting Rights Act. Can you kind of just walk us through that one? Absolutely. So the question at the heart of this case is, what test should courts use to determine whether or not there's been a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars discrimination in votings and elections? So this is a case in which Alabama, 2020, what happens is there's a census And then everyone has to redraw their maps. So we're having these cases bubble up to the Supreme Court. And in this case, Alabama redrew its maps for its seven congressional seats. And the state has roughly 27% Black residents, but only one of the seven congressional districts was a majority Black district. And so a group of registered voters and the Alabama branch of the NAACP went to federal court and they said, this violates section two of the Voting Rights Act because you packed all of the, a bunch of black voters into that one majority black district. And then you cracked the rest of them, split them up into a bunch of different districts when you could have drawn a second majority black district. And a group, a three-judge panel that included two appointees uh, of President Donald Trump agreed with the challengers, and they said this map likely violates the Voting Rights Act. So the state came to the Supreme Court this winter, asked the justices to put the district court's ruling on hold, and let it go ahead with this map for the 2022 elections, even though the district court had ruled that it likely violates the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court granted the state's request, set the case for argument this fall. And the state's argument is basically, Section 2 does not require it to prioritize race in redistricting. And in fact, if you consider race as the primary factor when you're redistricting, that would be unconstitutional. Um, The challengers and the Biden administration, which filed a brief supporting the challengers, say that that test would require a plaintiffs challenging a map to show that the map can only be explained by racial discrimination, which is not what Congress intended, not what the Supreme Court has said about the Voting Rights Act in the past. And the challengers say that if, if the Supreme Court agrees with the state's theory, it will decimate minority representation, not just in Alabama, but around the country. So I want to talk about another case involving uh, LGBTQ rights and uh, religious liberty this term. Now, if you recall, the 2018 Masterpiece Cake Shop case was supposed to kind of resolve the ongoing national controversy about religious wedding vendors who refuse their services for same-sex ceremonies. Uh, Long story short, it didn't. the, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of uh, Jack Phillips, the Christian baker and business owner who turned away a gay couple seeking a wedding cake, but Justice Anthony Kennedy's majority opinion ruled on very narrow fact-specific grounds that left unanswered those 
larger constitutional questions about free speech and LGBTQ discrimination. Now, this term, the justices are wading back into the wedding wars with the case 303 Creative LLC versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Amy, can you lay out the facts of this one and how it got to the Supreme Court? Of course. So this is the case of a graphic designer named Lori Smith, who wants to create custom wedding websites as part of the services that she offers, but she does not want to design custom websites for same-sex weddings because of her Christian beliefs. And she wants to put a notice on her own website to explain that she's not going to do your custom wedding website if you are a same-sex couple. There is the same Colorado, what's called a public accommodations law, um, that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against LGBTQ people or announcing that they want to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Um, And as you say, you know, back in 2018, the Supreme Court didn't decide this question. Um, The lower court in Smith's case ruled against her. So she came to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to decide whether or not requiring her to create the websites or prohibiting her from putting the announcement on her website violates her right to free speech. So significantly, the Supreme Court did not take up the question of whether or not this would violate her right to freely exercise her religion, um, which means that although we're talking about religious objections in Smith's case, the court's ruling could apply to other kinds of speech. And that's one of the questions. Like, what about a white supremacist who does not want to provide services to people of color? And so there's a couple different issues that are floating around. Um, One is how to draw the lines to figure out whether or not the Colorado law applies to her at all. And the state says, this is not about the content of what she's offering to the public. This is just about discriminating in her sales. And against LGBTQ people. And Smith says, you know, that's crazy. I'm not discriminating against same-sex couples, but instead on the message that same-sex couples are asking me to endorse when I create a custom wedding website. Um, And then another question that's sort of floating around is that I think that both sides in this case agree that creating a custom wedding website for for a, a couple who's getting married is a form of artistic expression, but like what else is artistic expression? This was something that was at issue in the cake case. There was a wonderful uh, friend of the court brief that had all kinds of pictures of very elaborate cakes uh, to illustrate that this was in fact art. And then, as I mentioned, like how far does this ruling go to protect other kinds of speech that people might find objectionable? Yeah, I, I do recall the the cake brief and the, you know, various iterations of hypotheticals asset arguments about um you know which types of professions could potentially turn away customers i think uh kagan asked about you know a hairdresser or makeup artist things of that nature in the brief even um filed by the uh, colorado civil rights commission i think mentioned the artistic uh endeavors uh, inherent in the subway sandwich creator who could potentially also lay claim to the same amount of constitutional rights of course that's getting a little bit far afield but the point is that um you know there are in 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 the state size potentially you know millions of occupations could that could claim these constitutional rights to free expression by turning away um, customers. So it, I, I suspect it'll probably be very similar, right, in, to the, the masterpiece 
um, cake shop argument in that respect when that one comes up. I don't believe they've set an oral argument, but it should be pointed out that that was a case that was resolved um, on, like we say, narrow grounds by Justice Kennedy, who's since retired um, and been replaced by uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and with the addition of the replacement of uh, the late Justice Ginsburg with Justice Barrett, it's a completely different court, right? And I mean, Amy, what do, what do the court's recent decisions involving claims of religious liberty tell you about how they may approach this particular kind of dispute? So this is not obviously a religious liberty case, but the, but her claim, to, you know, her free speech stems from her religious beliefs. And the court has been very protective of religious liberty in the past few years. And the fact that they decided to take the case, you only need four justices to grant review, but you do need five justices, obviously, to form a majority, strongly suggests to me that they think there are five justices for to do what they didn't do in Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, which is to go forward with a, a full-throated ruling on the merits in favor of Smith. So before we let you go, Amy, I want to ask one kind of broad, overarching, and uh, possibly even very unfair question. That is to kind of get you to predict, you know, what the story of the Supreme Court term will be come, you know, summer recess in July of 2023 as we look back on the, the, the big decisions. I mean, is there any overarching themes that you think, uh, like, most court watchers will be discussing, and what do you think those will be? I think that the big theme is going to be that the Roberts court continues its march to the right much as they did. There was a question once they had the solid six to three conservative majority, are they going to do this sort of incrementally, sort of a minimal minimalist rulings the way the chief justice might have preferred theoretically, or were they going to sort of go full throttle to the right? And it seems very possible that they will go full throttle to the right. And one thing we didn't have a chance to talk about during our discussion of the affirmative action cases is that this is not a case where I would necessarily expect the chief justice to be sort of caught in the middle between his more conservative colleagues and the the liberal bloc. This is a, a chief justice who a few years ago in a case called Parents Involved said the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So, you know, I think in the affirmative action cases, in some, the voting rights cases, you know, he it, it's likely to be a six to three rather than than some sort of five to four the way we saw in Dobbs. Well, Amy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It was great to have you. Amy is the editor and reporter for SCOTUS Blog. She's also the host of the podcast SCOTUS Talk, which did its own term preview show. Um, So again, people should check that one out. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Amy. Thanks. It's great to talk to you both. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at the court in person soon. Definitely. Thanks so much, Amy. That was a great conversation with Amy uh, talking about, you know, the blockbusters of the term. But obviously, there's a lot of also lesser known cases on the docket that we're watching. I, you know, personally, I'm watching a couple of the access to justice cases. Um, one of the big ones for me is Jones v. Hendrick, where the court has to decide um, whether federal prisoners can uh, file writs of habeas corpus uh, after new case law, including new Supreme Court president, uh, would make them retroactively legally innocent. Um, it's it's kind of a, a potential big impact case for a lot of federal prisoners. 
Uh, the other one I'm watching is Reed versus Gortz, which is um, a question about when the clock starts running for statute of limitations related to uh, seeking DNA testing of criminal evidence. Uh, you know, a very, pretty technical matter, but I think also high stakes, big impact here. Uh, Jimmy, what are you watching? Well, before before I get to mine, um, I mean, you won't have to wait long to to, to check those out. It looks like Reed versus Goertz, um, the DNA yeah. case is coming right up on the first session of the term on Tuesday, October 11th, and then even in November, on November 1st, is the Jones v. Hendricks case. So yeah, you're right that those will be really some some interesting questions um, involving uh, criminal law. Uh, I am watching, in addition to you know the ones that we talked about. With Amy, a really fascinating case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act called Holland versus Bracken. And this is basically a, a constitutional challenge to this 1978 law that basically was passed in order to keep Native American foster and adoptive children in Native communities, basically asking the state to prioritize um, the continued kind of cultural familiarity um, over non-Native families. Now, Texas, Louisiana, and Indiana argue that the law discriminates on the basis of race and violates the principle of federalism spelled out in the 10th Amendment. But I think that about does it um, for this preview episode. Natalie, I think I think we managed all right, kind of dusting off the cobwebs, uh, kind of loosening up after our uh, a long summer recess. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of tackle some of the, the big arguments this term. Same here. Like you said, we'll be jumping right into it next week. Awesome. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, our guest today, Amy Howe, and our contributing reporter, Marco Poggio. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks.